You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is a full panel of panelists. Freelance writer Tom Chick. If anyone needs a coffee, let me know. Freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Yeah, can you stick that in a uh, FedEx envelope and just ship that over to me? I'm sure it won't be cold at all by the time it gets 3,000 miles away. It's on the way, Julian. I'll put it in a thermos. Thank you. Thank Ooh, a thermos. And, and the haggard Bruce Garrick. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, let our audience know that uh, today's episode actually has a sponsor. It's uh, Trader Joe's, your neighborhood grocery store. And... Uh, you may be interested in the fact that uh, Trader Joe's is coming soon to uh, Olympia, Washington on August 21st, uh, also Princeton, New Jersey, West Los Angeles, California, uh, Newbury Park, California on August 7th, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Trader Joe's, so then, for all things good you, at grocers. So, Bruce, how did how did you get a sponsor, and where's my cut? That's Bruce's personal sponsor. <laughs> well, I think that... Uh, it it sort of uh, behooves us to um, you know get uh, some you know commercial tie-ins to our uh, to our topics and since today's uh, topic is going to be trading games I thought that uh, you know we would uh, sort of try to expand our little uh, strategy gaming empire to encompass the uh, the world of commercial media. By the way, Trader was really happy our, to do that too. Yeah, we're not really sponsored by Trader Joe's, so in case any uh, any lawyers come. Um, uh, after Troy, it was all his idea. Uh, yeah. Anyway, wait a minute. Why can't we, we say? Why can't we just say we're sponsored by whomever we want? Can we not it's do fun. that? Is that illegal? Uh, no, because the Obama administration probably frowns upon that. Like it frowns. Upon uh, <laughs> but then we send Bill Clinton in, and everything's all right. Yes, and everything's fixed. Man, I miss the days of the Bush administration when we could do stuff like that. Yeah. No more <sighs> doing we stuff. Uh, yeah, today's topic is trading games, partly inspired from last week's big strategy title, East India Company, which I reviewed for Crispy Gamer, and which you'll talk a little bit about. 7.9. In my re- Pardon? Bruce? 7.9. 7.9? Right. It gets a 7.9 from you? No, you got it. You gave it a 7.9, right? Yeah, there's three ratings of Crispy Gamer. There's a 10, a 9, and a 7.9. Okay. Ouch. Ouch. There, yeah, the review, there is no reviewer's tilt. Uh, you need reviewer's tilt. Troy, what is the fun factor on East India Company? Fun factor on East India Company what is number? A negative. Oh, it, whoa, ouch. Ooh. Or an AB plus or vitamin O. I don't know. Ooh, vitamin O. <laughs> how, many, how many erect penises did you give it? I can't believe I said that. Can we cut that? Can we just... Oh, not at all. Yeah, I mean, Tom, your, your appearance on Giant Bomb is like next week. <laughs> I don't even know what that's from. Oh, good lord! Uh, so I'm with so, Troy, uh, by the way, in that I was not terribly fond of East India Company either. Yeah, Tom, you ran a series, a short series of game diaries on East India Company. You didn't review it for any site, but you did have some concluding statements. Uh, where does East India Company fall apart, in your opinion? Uh, in well, certainly not in the concept, because Troy, you and I, uh, you were there the first time I saw East India Company. I'd, I'd certainly heard about it, and we had the designer uh, sort of show off bits and pieces of it when we were at E3, talking to uh, Johan and to 
Kim, the designer of East India Company. And I was so psyched about it then because I loved the idea. As I've said, it's certainly a game I want to play. Um, you, you know, trade from that era. Uh, there's some great stuff you can game there. But I guess where it fell apart for me, a, a lot of stuff with the interface and with the AI, I don't think I have as much of a problem with the basic design as you do. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have a problem with the way it was executed. Uh, if it had better ship management, for instance, better better management of cargo when you sail a ship to the Orient, I, I could deal with the design being sort of streamlined and there not being a lot of uh, cool variables with the, the, the goods that you trade. Uh, and I can even deal with the lack of, you know, you can only send one ship to one port to pick up basically one good. It'll fill its cargo hold with the other goods that are available to port, but none of that matters terribly. Uh, and I was even okay with some of that. And even some of the micro I was okay with. Uh, but it fell apart mainly in terms of the interface for me. It just required too much mucking around with little tiny buttons, and there weren't enough hotkeys, and there weren't there wasn't enough of a focus on on uh, the user interface. Uh, on actually getting anything done. I mean, that to me was the issue I had with it. And I'll be fair, I only played maybe three or four hours of it. I mean, I played through the tutorials and a little bit past that. And I just found that I spent all of my time playing, all of my time playing the game, not playing the game, if that makes sense. I found I like was playing the interface of the game to get to the part where the game actually would be. That's very existential. It is very (laughs) existential, but I'm a very existential kind of guy. Well, I, uh, I've only played the game for like maybe an hour, so in a, in a way, I know more about it than any of you, um, because I'm able to more fully visualize what the game would be like if it were the way I would want it. And um, I, I, I don't know, Tom. Did you did you count against in your interface demerit column the fact that it took forever to go from uh, from the main global screen to the port screen person. Why do you even have to go into that port screen? I mean, what's the point of Fortunately, that? Fortunately, to see right. the guys walking around? Well, here's what I think it is. I think they, you know, they have they have this game design. They want to do this trade game, and they make a 3D engine for it to have these cool naval battles. Fair enough. But then with their 3D engine, they also think, hey, let's do a unique three-dimensional representation of each port. You know, here's Calcutta. Here's Bombay. Here's London. Uh, here's whatever the capital. Here's Lisbon. Uh, and they they have somebody making these things, and they want to put them in the game. So they force you to go in and look at their little 3D representation of the port because they they went through all the work. Uh, that's my theory. Because really, there's no reason that you should have to that the stuff that you do in that port screen that you couldn't do from the main strategic map. I agree. Uh, right. And it's and, and really frustrating, what, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, to, to, it takes to their credit to, the very, to their credit, the very first patch uh, made just kind of cut that time in half. Well, but what it didn't do, Troy, and what I think they should have done is you still have to go into that port screen. Yes. And once right. you're in there, it's still even there a mess. You've got, I think, eight, yeah. six or eight buttons along the bottom. Each one opens a window. You can only have two windows open at a time. There's a lot of... Uh, well, there, there's feels, just, you're having to click way too many layers deep to do yes. things that you shouldn't have to click layers. They're very basic. I mean, why can't I right-click on a port to upgrade something? Well, it, it felt very much to, to me like Birth of America, 
in that sense. But the difference in Birth of America was I always felt like I could get where I needed to go. I mean, but but it has that that kind. It, to me, it had that kind of feel where it always took me three or four more clicks than I thought it should to get anything done, and it wasn't always yeah. obvious what I should be doing. Yeah, but Birth of America is a hardcore war game, so the difficulty you had is just a simulation of the difficulty that any commander has when commanding troops in combat and in the heat of battle. <laughs> oh, that's the excuse they trot out for difficult interfaces. Sorry, I couldn't couldn't remember that. I'll write that down. Yeah, let's keep, keep so what about you, you guys? So you was there anything about East India Company that you guys really liked? Because I have a few things, and I'm just curious. What was it all? I just sort of negative feel of it. I mean, I know that sounds sort of silly because that's that's very non Grognardian, but I really loved. I mean, even in the tutorial, going through the tutorial, that sort of feel of like what the guys look like, what the buildings look like, what the ships look like. I found all of that very compelling. It was a world I wanted to be in. I just didn't actually get all that interested in the game that was in that world. Well, I, I'm very happy in the world that I live in, so I don't really want to go back to, like, ancient Renaissance times. But um, but I, I, I do – I mean, I, well, I like the name. I thought the name was really good. Um, I also like – Wait a minute. Uh, hold on. Before we move on from the name, I have a problem with the name because every time – and maybe it's because of what I do for a living. Every time I see the initials, I think editor-in-chief. There you go. Yeah, I see people writing EIC. That's not East India Company. I mean, that, they really needed cheap. to work on their 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 uh, acronym there. So, Bruce, you and I disagree. Big surprise. There you go. Um, what, what else yeah. do you like, Bruce? Um, I also like the pictures that they have that t- when you're going from the global screen to the port screen, they have these cool illustrations of like uh, like elephants and people riding elephants. Or, they're kind of like, like watercolors or mosaics. Yeah, or they're really great. I love whoever, so whoever does those. I I, I think those are uh, I think those were really really well done. And as a matter of fact, to be honest with you, I would prefer that the whole game be like that with these like watercolor drawings. I would be totally fine with the whole game being like a two D watercolor representation of of uh, of whatever times those were that this happened. Yep. Uh, yeah. I- I really like the aesthetics of the game. I mean, it's a very attractive game, one of the best-looking strategy games of the year. The strategy map is, I mean, it's immediately intuitive. You know what's important. You know what's not. Uh, the ships going around, dodging each other, um, avoiding the traffic jams. It's a beautiful, beautiful game. I love the full watercolors. Yeah, the, but, I mean, yeah, no. I mean, I think the, I mean, the map is nice. I mean, it's not, frankly, I don't get a... A big rush out of it. I mean, I think it's okay. I think it's it's a little it's a little generic. It suffers from the from the the problem that all those three D world maps have, which is that it's you know there's not much. Uh, also, there's also no doesn't seem to be much of a Sahara Desert, which I find odd. But um, what are you going to do in the Sahara Desert in a game about? Well, I want it to be there. I don't want to feel like I'm on like I'm on the foreign ancient. Alien planet. By the way, I don't even think they discovered. They didn't even discover the desert back in there at this point in time. They had no idea what was in there. Oh God! They had indigenous (laughs) peoples. Isn't that good enough for you? Are you? What are you? Some kind of? uh, He's a racist. Yeah, they're pretty. Yeah, at least I'm not a a neo-colonialist. I'm a I'm a traditional colonialist. Nah, you're just yeah. (laughs) God, PBS is going to shut us down. So there were there were a lot of little things. I mean, I I, I like how simple it is. Uh, they 
I didn't want the game to be more complex than it was. However, as as a trading game, you need to have better cargo management than was there. I needed to have the ability to say, no, I don't want you to fill the cargo hold full of tar, because the last thing I want to do is have a bunch of tar. Uh, when you're going to be stopping... Well, when you're going to be pulling into a, a diamond port on the way by, and the money will have accumulated, I say just save it all up for uh, the mass goods. I didn't see much need for the generic goods at all, in fact, except for some of these events. Um, such and such a place is a rush on metal. Well, you can sell metal there. Well, I'm still going to make more money selling silk. So yeah, let's, involved- talk about the, let's talk about the whole uh, economic engine in this game. Wait, before I mean, we do that, yeah. can I talk yeah. about real quick? Yeah. This, this might segue like- into it. Well, one of the things that I liked about it, uh, as far as the basic design of the game, uh, was this sense that there was base, that there was one path from Europe all the way over to India. Everybody's using that same path, and the gameplay evolves into being about which rows of ports you control and how far your ships can get before they have to put in and resupply. Yeah. I really like that angle of the game, which I don't recall being in many previous games. No, Maybe in Merch. But I, but I like the sense that uh, if you lost one coast of Africa, it was going to be a huge pain in the ass to get around the, what is that, Cape of Good Hope down there. So it would behoove you to sort of seize one of those ports. Or if you got locked out of, say, coffee, and then partway through the game you get, this is kind of arbitrary, but it drives the gameplay a little bit, Partway through the game, you get this quest requirement where the game will shut down if you don't get a certain amount of coffee by a certain date. So it behooves you, you know, you've got to either capture this coffee port or make a, a diplomatic arrangement with whoever controls it to be able to trade there. I liked, uh, and that because it was a simple path, you know, that one straight line on the way to India, uh, you, you could sort of manage this stuff pretty easily. Uh, I, I like that aspect of the design, and I, I thought that was unique to what East India Company was doing that I haven't really seen in other trading games. Well, the the interesting thing I think about um about East India Company or this kind of this kind of game it, it's it's more of a there's there's more emphasis on the trade routes than I think there are there sorry than I think there is in uh in some other non-rail games because in in rail of course rail trading games the whole point is to have uh you know, controlling the track or the route between um, between two cities or between two resources or whatever. And in in sailing games, there's a bit more of a free for all. Um, but uh, but the way you kind of get around that is that uh, you have um, you know you have combat. You're not you know no train trading game is going to have uh, you know your Infantry goes and seizes the rail line so that the trains can't run. Although that Which would be an awesome kind of a, game. Yeah, that would that be actually, awesome frankly, game. now that I think about it, yeah, you're right. I think it would be pretty That would just be a killer. Yeah. The Mad Max rail trader game. India Rails yeah. dash Mad Max. That would they be They should awesome. do that. I think that would they be great. They totally should. I want to rock it. I think we should get my... Vic Davis on that. Do a, do yes. a mod for Armageddon Empires where you lay rail. and. Uh... Yeah, I'm totally yeah, sold on this. Like, take over the trains. Now, that would be actually you know what you really need? You need to have battles between trains. But but that's, to, that's, to, to well, yeah, although the, since you can't control where you're going, that would be a little tricky. But 
but to not to engage in too much of a segue, but but one of the things about rail games that's interesting in general, if we're making a big generalization, um, yes, is many many rail games that are certainly trying to create the the height of the railroad barons in the U.S. bring in this whole issue of a stock market and an alternate victory path. Right. I mean, generally, money is the winner in a rail game, and you don't necessarily need to control all of the critical routes to win a well-designed rail game. You can just yeah. be a particularly good negotiator. You can be investing in the right technology. You can be investing in the right stations in other people's towns. I mean, good rail games bring multiple paths to victory, and that's what Unless I really love about Steam. that genre. Unless you're playing Age of Steam, in which case that doesn't work. Well, yeah, but that's a very simple game. Age of Steam is a great game. It is, but it's a very simple game. Could you explain Age of Steam to our listeners? Age of Steam is a game about trains and taking cargo from one place to another. The end. <laughs> and it's apparently very simple, I hear. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, but it doesn't have a it doesn't have a really complex sort of purchasing stock market simulation engine going alongside of it, which which quite a few train games do. Correct. That's I mean, one of the I, things I mean, too that I like the love about. Games. Yes, these train games do a great job of of creating the concept of a, of a company, uh, and I, that's one of the things I wish they'd done a better job with in East India Company. Right. Yeah. Because Thank you. you are partly you're basically it's a little confused, and I remember being kind of a country. I got a demo. You're, you are you're kind of a country, and then there's war with other countries, and there's no sense that you're a commercial enterprise. You're you're, you're like representing your nation and there's only one company so that's something that i miss from railroad games that really do this cool job of creating companies uh and and the, the warfare between the companies in a way is like julian was saying i mean that's sort of what the stock market is instead exactly. of fighting each other they they have this this economic conflict with the stock markets uh i wish east india company had been a little more careful with that uh part of the sort of what it was trying to simulate well, in the original Railroad Tycoon, you could take the competition, like, right onto the tracks. You could build a station right up next to your opponents and have a, a big fare war. Try And prices and for passenger travel would be slashed. And you're trying to get as many people in and out as quick as you can. Try to win that and drive him out of that market mm-hmm. uh, without the stock market being involved at all. The actual building itself of the rails and the stations was an aspect of the war. And I think there really wasn't... And the only head-to-head competition you have uh, in East India Company is really the na- is really the conquering ports and uh, shooting blowing and, crap up and, and blowing up yeah blowing crap up taking out ships. Uh, if Which I was to get don't get me wrong, up, I love blowing crap up, but I don't think of that as a that. trading game. <laughs> but if if I was, for example, to take both of the porcelain ports, there are two porcelain ports way out uh, in the Far East. If I was to get both of those. I would have no idea how that's affecting my opponents. I have a monopoly on porcelain in Europe, and all I know is they can't get porcelain to their cities. Is that affecting them? Does it make any difference at all? No idea. It doesn't affect the price of porcelain in my uh, port either. I think one of the things that it does, Troy, is I I think the game expects you to manage... Uh, because prices fluctuate, and this this can yep. segue into what I think Bruce was starting to say about economy before I cut him off. But in East India Company, prices fluctuate based on how much you're flooding the market with a good. So if you yep. control both of the porcelain markets, you can stop the trade to let the price go up. 
which again comes into, I mean, the, the game really... But as, far, but as far as I know, but the prices only depend on how much you're selling in your own home port, not in Europe in general. Mm, I don't think that's... Are you sure? Because if you click on the... That's the understanding it, that I have. Can somebody look up the rule book? <laughs> if you click on the, the trading display for the price of a good, uh, you can see it fluctuating for goods that you're not trading. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong there, but I thought that it was a global thing. Uh, because certainly in games I've played where I'm not like trading, I don't know, coffee or whatever, I've seen the price go up and down. Um, but but another thing, Troy, that I'm not sure about, and I wish I'm with you here. I wish the game was a little clearer on it. Uh, the the progression of gameplay is every every 30 years you have to do a quest, and the quest tends to involve trade this many hundreds of this good, you know, import it and sell it at your port. Uh, and then there's a list of a couple of goods, and you have to trade two out of five of those or whatever. So if you right. lock down porcelain, I think you can shut other players out of the game, other countries or companies or whatever they are, whatever these entities are, if you don't let – if they get a porcelain quest. And I don't know if the AI gets the quests like you do. I've certainly seen See, the AI that, dropped out of yeah. a game. I've seen them defeated. Uh, but I don't know if yeah. it's because they failed a quest or because they went bankrupt. I don't. I don't know what the deal was. Uh, but I like to think that they have to do the same quests that you do, and it would be nice to know what their quests are, which right. would give you a reason to try to control certain goods, and you would know how effective you were in terms of driving the game, and by what goods you could control. Yeah, I mean, there's just not enough information on what your opponents are up to um, until they decide to sink your fleet. And even that's another, even in the, the ship combat, you know, you can't see how fast another ship is going or its range from you. I mean, that's, well, that, that's an I mean, amateur guess, mistake. They, they should know that that's, the inf- that's information the player wants in the game. I'm, I'm surprised it's not provided. Well, do, what do you, just, I was actually kind of shocked when I played the game about how many things are kind of obvious things that you would, if you played games you would sort of immediately say, oh, this needs this, or, oh, that, that, I mean, how can I not have that? And it, there's a lot of those things. How does that happen? That's really a good question. I, I would like to know the answer to that. Uh, I mean, I guess just game development is a, a, a lethargic, heavy, slow-moving beast, and it's hard to change direction once it's gotten a certain amount of uh, movement going. I don't know, uh, but that that that's exactly the feeling when I'm playing it too. Bruce is how does this? How do they not know that this shouldn't be this way? Uh, I think one of the problems is that the beta testers don't get the game till a lot of the stuff is already you know stuck. Right, right. And they've I've had I've known people who've been in beta tests for other strategy games, including some of the Paradox games, and very often some of the hard design stuff they're told, no, you can't talk about that, we can't fix that, it's done, we're not changing it. And, you know, that kind of takes a lot of the power to the hand of beta testers to say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff here we need to have, otherwise the game doesn't work quite well. But, yeah, I, mean, I think really, it's fun. That really makes it, uh, it puts a lot of responsibility on the game developers to sort of know what the heck they're doing. And, uh, I don't know, I guess it's easy for me to sit here and say, wow, uh, if I designed that game, I would never have done that. But, uh, I mean, wow, if I designed this game, I never would have done that. I mean, that's, 
it's just a lot of stuff that I just can't see how anybody who's played games for you know any number of years would immediately. When, I mean, when you're when you sit down to try to play your own game, you think, "What the heck?" I mean, just the 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 opacity of the of the interface as far as, I mean, just going into that port screen, I mean, after the third time I went into the port screen, I thought there's just, there's nothing here (laughs) that I need at all. And and I'm not really getting, I mean, it's not like I feel like I'm going to Calcutta or that, you know, I have, I care about the little guys. Well, I mean, I guess if you made that engine, you would sort of admire it for much longer than anybody else would. But still, I mean, I don't want to see those guys walking around. There's nothing in that screen that I can change or do, I just pull up menus. I mean, did I not play the game? I mean, is there something no, where it's, I it's a, me- it is a very pretty menu screen. Level them up. It's a very pretty <laughs> menu. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Age of Empires three, they had that whole home city conceit, uh, and a home city was really a deck of cards. Uh, but behind the deck of cards, there was this really lush three D representation of your city, and one of the things you could do is as you as you leveled up your home city, you could buy, and these did nothing, but you could buy these little cosmetic improvements for your city. Yeah. You could hang banners on the chapel, and you could hire a juggler <laughs> to sort of walk around with the little people. And and that never really got old for me because I don't you didn't have to duck in and out of it constantly. Right. It was only a place you visited between games. Uh, it was gorgeous. It was charming. It, it made use of the 3D engine you were using when you were playing the game. Uh so just that that's a yeah I don't I, maybe that's maybe that influenced them. They were like, hey, you have home cities in Age of Empires three. Let's do that with every port in East India Company. Uh, <laughs> Bruce, you started to say something about the economies of of games. How how do you make the the economy in general, but the cargo in specific? How do you make that stuff interesting? And there there's a loaded word that means nothing. How do you make it interesting? In a trading game, well, I think you start with a big stimulus package. I mean, that's that's right off the bat. <laughs> a lot of people going. Um, uh, I mean, other than that, I, I mean, I, I think that it's important to have the sort of decisions you make have to affect the market. I mean, there has to be some sort of market, right? I mean, if you're trading, there has to be market. I guess. I guess there doesn't really, but then it becomes a puzzle game, right? Where you sort of suss out the the most efficient route for the best goods. So well, the, that the, always has the, to be changing. The, the right? traditional way of doing this so that it matters is you make the thing that you're trading a resource you also need to use, right? The problem with trading porcelain is that there's no benefit to having lots of porcelain. I don't agree with that, Julian. I don't. I don't agree with that at all because I think of all the awesome railroad tycoon games and whatnot. You never used those resources. It, it was part no, of. No, I I agree, but I think that that's a flaw. I mean, I think to me, like, I mean, if we're gonna get if we're gonna get hardcore here, to me, the most hardcore pure trading game of all time was Mule, right? Which Atari eight hundred four hundred slash Commodore sixty four four player fundamentally a resource and trading game. And you actually needed the resources that you were developing and trading and and hoarding and trying to control the market in all the time, right? There were food. Now, can I make a, inter- a, a real quick just sort of caveat here? Is Mule a trading game or is it an auction game? 
And and is that even? Am I just being too pedantic? Well, it's to both. Try to- it's both because you can play it entirely cooperatively, where you're basically giving stuff back and forth to people, or you can play it very Machiavellianly, where you're just purely trying to screw the other three people in the game. So, I mean, I I think that's a fair point that the, that the auction phase of Mule, which is sort of the last half of every of the eight or sixteen rounds or whatever it was of Mule, it's been a long time, 1984 or something like that. Um, those oh, are those are the, the auction phase is is clearly different than engaging in a sort of continuous sort of railroad railroad tycoon level moving things from one geographic level to another. But if we're talking about you know what does it take to make cargo interesting, which was your point, I think what it takes to make cargo interesting is make it useful. Okay, that's the difference. Now, are there any traditional trading games you can think of that do that? Well, what do you mean by traditional trading games? Can I can I think of any railroad games where that's the case? No. I think Tom means a game in which the market is the focus of the game. Because making, the Imperialism series is a great example of exactly what you're talking about. But I wouldn't call the Imperialism series trading game, uh, you know, a series of trading games. The Imperialism series is a strategy world conquest game with a very well developed uh, economic market aspect that includes trading. Correct. Uh, it's not, and, and yeah, imperialism, if it were specifically about trading, would probably look something like, I don't know, East India Company. Uh, Machiavelli, uh, uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's a trading game, right? I would or, say Machi- so. Merchant because, Prince, good lord, I can't believe I called it yeah. by its neo name. Uh, but Merchant Prince was a trading game, and, and those goods weren't used, were they? No. I mean, they were, they weren't used at all. They were entirely, I mean, there was a, there was a market, of course. Uh, it was a very, Good market. You could flood the market with relics and break somebody's Byzantine trade pretty easily. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's a trading game, and I would say I can think of very few uh, computer trading games that actually have resources that are also integral to uh, some other aspect of the game design. And I but think that's the reason makes, there, Julian, you've got that, a great point. This is this would be a great approach to a trading game, and I think it's been done. But what happens is you then have a strategy game. Well, right, okay, but I mean, I guess the question is, what do we? I mean. What do you well, mean? I mean, I don't, what do you mean a strategy game? Yeah. Well, for instance, he means, he, means, he means a strategy game larger than just a trading yeah, game, right. a game that right. has other yeah. focuses. So, so clearly, on- Settlers of Catan is not a trading game. However, the trading phase matters quite a bit. If you do well right. at that, you will win. Right. If you do very poorly right. at that and your opponents do well at yes. it, you will lose. But it is not yeah, a trading civilization. game. I think, yeah, a classic example of that, I think, is Civilization, which is which is ultimately a, you know, that's all about the trading phase of the game. So then, but that the, 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 to, to clarify for listeners, the board game civilization, the real civilization, not the, not the computer game right. civilization. How not dare the, you? Not the this is a this is a strategy video gaming podcast. The real I'm reading the I, I'm reading the website, and it is definitely a strategy gaming podcast. So, fuck it. Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get on that. And but I I do think that there's a real issue here, which is that when I think of you know when I was sitting down thinking of okay, what are my favorite trading game experiences, whether they're board games or not board games or whatever, the act of trading is much more satisfying when there's a real person on the other side, because when you're negotiating, if Tom and I are negotiating directly about how much sheep I'm going to give him for how much wood. That's that's a fun interaction, and they're both useful things. It can't be fun. And, 
And that's a negotiation. And those negotiations are fun. They're entertaining and they have a lasting impact on the game. In that case, Settlers of Catan. There are very few computer games I can think of that bring that level of satisfying trading experience. Again, the only one I can think of is Mule, but in Mule, you're actually sort of, you're actually kind of doing the Settlers of Catan thing, right? Where you've got everybody in the auction moving their auction points up and down at the same time. And I mean, that really feels like you're really playing a, a facilitated board game more than you're playing a video game in the sense that there's an AI out there. You're trying to manipulate that market. Well, first of all, I have two things to say. First of all, Julian, I don't want your filthy sheep. I'm trading them from <laughs> Troy for wheat. So there, suck it. Uh, and, and second of all, I mean, I, I guess it is sort of helpful to think. I mean, when I think of trading games, I think of like railroad games. I think of Elite, for instance, the old space combat right. game where you're Privateer. shuffling things around. Privateer. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I, yeah, it depends on how wide we want to get. But, but what I'm curious about... X2, there you go, X3. Yeah. Uh, is how do you make Battle Cruiser 3000? Oh, no, no, Troy. Oh, no, no. You brought in the word, you brought in 3000. That's all very close to saying Derek oh, Smart's name. Actually, so here's, is there really trading in the Battle Cruiser 3000 games? I don't, I actually don't know the answer to this. Oh, come on. Have, have, any, have any of us really played enough of a Derek Smart game to say we understand the economy of a Derek Smart game? But there's probably trade in there somewhere. Yes, there, uh, is, uh, there is some trading in but, yes. but when you don't have a game like what Julian's talking about, when you do have these trading games, how do you make the cargo and the economy interesting? Julian, that's one idea, but that, that tends to sort of bust out of the standard trading game paradigm, if, if you will. Uh, so I... Uh, I Go ahead, Troy. One route. Uh-huh. One route is to have, you know, uh, but, but, I mean, Trade Empires is a game I mentioned in my review. Yes. Where the goods, where there are resource chains, and the goods that are in demand uh, change as history progresses. And as the industries develop, you could have this huge, great bronze industry developed. Then iron comes along, and you have to completely uh, reorient your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to find optimal routes to make sure all the goods are in the right place and protect your routes. That's uh, because of the difference problem. between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Yes, Bruce. <laughs> uh, the big, the, I had some problems with trade empires, many of them similar to East India Company, that there wasn't enough direct interaction with your commercial rivals. But because there was a chain of resources, and every basic good could be used either for just sale, or you could use it to make a more, more highly advanced good, similar to imperialism, similar to colonization, uh, where certain products can be used for more uh, advanced products. I think that's one way to make the goods interesting. And, and to make Troy, trading also, interesting. didn't the Railroad Tycoon games do this? Like, you could have war. Yeah. Uh, like, a, be a current event would happen, or the automobile industry might spring up. Like, that, that was an aspect of the Railroad Tycoon games as yes. well, wasn't it? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, steel and iron become really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a war in Europe, then you want to get into the arms trade. And uh, problems, if you know that's going to happen... There's a whole, you know, predicting uh, history thing. You know, I I know automobiles are going to be coming in 1900. It's 1850. I better, you know, grab some stuff. Way to go, so Nostradamus. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> so uh, that, 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 that's one thing they can do. You make the, make the uh, goods more interactive, both with history and with each other. And also the Railroad Tycoon games would do things with uh, the sort of expiration date. Like mail and passengers would require faster transportation to get there sure. sooner, 
Whereas then there would be bulk cargo, you know, coal or whatnot, and that you could just take to take nine ways to Sunday to get it to its destination, and and that, that would be matter. fine. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so sort of like giving the cargo a little personality in the context of gameplay is also something that Railroad Tycoon always did. Well, you know, the thing I want to bring up is that you know, I I always hated the the uh, and I was always you know I've I've been guilty of this in the past, so it's not like something I hate that other people do. Um, I always hated sort of the school of game reviewing where you reviewed a game based on what you wish it had in it rather than what it actually has in it. <laughs> it's a perfectly valid uh, way to review a game. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I've done it. and it's, it's you know, it, But I, I'm sure it's very frustrating for the developers to say, well, you know, we didn't have Nazis in this trading game. So, you know, the fact that you wish there were Nazis in it is kind of irrelevant. So... Uh, I just, I mean, I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about East India and just what what things, but taking the game as it is and just the things that are in it, which is that uh, there is a an economic system in which the goods are not used uh, in any gameplay mechanic. They simply exist to generate money and to satisfy mm-hmm. victory conditions. And... Mm-hmm. This, in a system where uh, people control ports, so they control the flow of goods, and it's possible to attack the um, the uh, ships that are carrying these goods, so you can, you know, jack people up. Uh, what what is it about the game that could have been more interesting that it ended up failing in? Uh, is, I mean, is it just all interface issues, or is, is, does the do the design decisions that they made, you know, predispose it to having certain flaws? I, I think it's all interface issues. I mean, I, I really like really? the basic gameplay concept that they had, uh, and I think with interface issues ironed out, I mean, I think it's a solid design. Uh, so there you go. That's that's so that's so basically if they could fix the interface and have it be you know have the interface be as slick as say the one in uh, Civilization uh-huh. or Civ Four I mean I just use Civilization as a catch-all uh, you would you th- you think the game would be really good <clears throat> I, I well I yes I would like it it's a, it's a game that I would very much want to play like I I don't think there's a problem I don't think there's anything endemic uh, to uh, inherent in the game design uh, that I have a problem with so it's all so uh, it's, and certainly so, Bruce what I don't is, know I mean well real quick it's it really is Bruce that that same concept you're talking about but you don't review a game wishing that it was something that you wanted to play you review a game based on on what it is and based on right. what it is I really like. What the designers, I really like what Nitro Studios wanted to do. I like their design doc- document, basically. Uh, and I, I think if they had executed it a little bit better, uh, East India Company would be a perfectly fine game. Yeah, I think there are some problems with the core design document. I mean, I think it's, I, I mean, you always say, you know, don't review the game that is, not the game you want it to be. But I mean, every time you say something negative about a game, I'd probably go back to your prototype. Review, Tom, where you wanted to do an open world differently. You had issues with, you know, the core game design there, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I have some similar. I have some core issues with the the repetitiveness of uh, the of East India Company. How there is once I've played 
uh, Portugal and Spain, I have no reason for me to play Sweden. <laughs> what do you have against I, the Swedes? What? Nothing well, at all. I, I just don't. Is it all, it's all game, about ABBA. <laughs> and, and it, the, the game has, has n- 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 no longevity whatsoever. Okay, but it's um, not necessarily, Troy. I mean, does a game have to have, I and think, I'm getting pedantic here, but does a game have to have longevity to be good? And I don't, I, I agree. I think no a strategy, a strategy game and does. Spain, but I don't think it's a game that's trying to do asymmetrical sides. I mean, I think that's part of the confusion of the design document, is they have you think you're playing different nationalities and different companies, and you're not. You're an interchangeable faction that just happens to start at this point on the map. No, my point isn't that it should be asymmetrical. My point is the experience doesn't change enough. Well, that is the whole point of it being asymmetrical. No, I mean, but, but, but from one game to the next, if I, I don't have to play Portugal yet. See, I think that's a little unfair too, Troy. I have to take issue with you there mm-hmm. because the, the, I think the appeal of the design of the game, if the game, right. if the interface didn't annoy me so much, I would want to play again because I would, you know, the the port, the the way you control ports along the passage to India, which goods are important, I can see that changing from game to game. In one game, it might be really important to get that east coast of India that has all the silk, and in another game, that might not be as important. I might get a lock on that early on, and the struggle might be about coffee up in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. I mean, it's, it's a fixed map, but with eight factions that can unfold different ways, uh... I don't know. I've only played through a couple of games, and not even. I've played through like one game that I lost, and then I've started a couple of others. But I, I kind of think that's a little is, bit of an. Is there, but is there is there even variety in the campaign missions from one year game to the next? Aren't they the same campaign missions? I don't in every single so. grand yeah, that's campaign. That's a very good question. I don't think so. Because uh, your your starting campaign missions are always the same from one to the next. Well, it They're starts always out have, to get you right, right, right. But I my impression, and I could be wrong, is that they're then randomized. Like it, okay. there's some sort of die roll or something going on that determines which resources you need. And even then, Troy, what you have to trade to accomplish your quest varies because you've got your primary goods that you have to trade. And then yes. you pick two out of five secondary goals. So uh, you might have a point. And, but anyway, I, just, I, I think you, you talked a little bit about the simplicity of the design and how you liked that. And I think yep. that... that there can be a thin line between simplicity and repetitiveness. Uh, mm. And so, I, I don't know. I just think I, I take issue with, with your opinion there. But, but I don't know. I think so, so, Bruce, did, did you ask that because you, you were curious what we thought, or did you also think that there was some inherent problem with the design? No, I mean, I, I don't... I, I was really, you know, it's hard to believe, but it, I was really truly interested in what you guys think. Um... The, uh, I guess the the point I would make is that I don't really have. I agree with I agree with you, Tom. Uh, I shouldn't really say that, but uh, so I don't disagree too much at this point with you. Subject to further revision, um, I don't really. It doesn't really bother me if a game is repetitive as long as it has you know interesting decisions that you make that you know might the game might brand. I mean, if if, if every single game were about the same set of ports and they always develop the same way um even then i think maybe it would be interesting for me until i figure that out and at which point you know i maybe i'd be fine with having played the game i mean it's not i don't expect every game to be some you know multi-decade uh interesting uh thing that i come back to over and over i mean there's a you know handful of games 
um, that I, you know, would be on that list. And even then, you know, you, they sort of technology overtakes them. But I don't mind sort of sussing out the the uh, you know the interesting decision points and trying to approach them a little differently each time. Um, and if if I'm just using a different, um, I don't think you necessarily have to, you know, simulate all of the you know particular uh, idiosyncrasies of you know the Swedish monarchy versus you know the <laughs> Portuguese. You know, I don't think anybody is saying that. Actually that sounds interesting now. So, well, to I mean, Troy's it, credit, it, 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 I mean, Troy, go ahead, Bruce. I mean, it's it's you do certainly. I mean, if you if you call a faction Sweden and you call another faction, you know, the Netherlands, um, you you sort of as a as a strategy gamer, as a historical strategy gamer, you do sort of expect a, a different approach and a different set of set of uh, you know historically based problems to to overcome. But I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. The game can be perfectly interesting and 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 have uh, a good set of decisions that that uh, you have to make and not hinge on uh, all sorts of you know historical minutia. But uh, I I I can't I'd say I didn't play the game long enough to uh, to really get into how the end game develops. Um, I you know I wish I had time to do that. I don't. But. Um, I mean, I just couldn't really get past the fact that I had to go into that port screen, right. and I just—I right. mean, right. every time I did that, I thought, you know, what were they thinking? And 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 on my computer, which I need—I I guess I really just need to upgrade this thing so I don't have to talk about this anymore. But uh, I mean, on my computer, it was a—it was a non-trivial amount of time that I had to sit there and watch the thing load, and they have that little—it had a loading bar that would say, you know, loading. Wow. You or, may not have realized, Bruce, you can turn off the 3D ports. You—you you still. Oddly enough, have to sit through the little loading it just splash a menu. screen. Like I said, it's colors. just a menu. All it is was yeah, a menu in the first place. It flashes to a 2D picture of the 3D port. Uh, okay, but it's supposed uh, to load up, right? I guess it would be. I guess it would take less time. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. pretty instantaneous. The, the the irony is, or not irony, but the, the screwy thing is that when you click enter port, you don't enter the port. You go to the splash screen that you would normally wait at. Even if it's not loading the port, and then you go into the port. They patched that out though. But that was, I kind of like that, so you could look at those awesome watercolors. Uh, but th- that was just another screwy instance of what are you people doing? This is yeah. this is an am- this is an amateur hour. You know, this is a commercial release. How do you not know that you're not supposed to do it this way? Uh, I, I just wanted to real quick uh, defend Troy a bit and just say, Troy, I kind of I can understand like. But part of the problem is the the competition. I think for East India Company, it's in the tradition of railroad tycoon games, yeah. and and those have it this is. awesome it sense is. of you've got a big wide open map, and every time you play, you're going to lay a different trade network, or it's going to unfold very differently. And East India Company really doesn't do that. Uh, it's a straight line, but I do feel though that you're kind of shortchanging the replayability uh, in that. That straight line can evolve differently. It really matters which port you upgrade. I wish to God you could see which ports the computer players were upgrading. That's another instance of any sort of replayability and variability. They kind of hide because it would be nice to know, you know, where is Sweden repairing its ships? You know, which is the juicy target for me to take Spain out of the running when it comes to having military presence in India? Uh, And you can't see that stuff. And that's just a stupid mistake on Nitro Studios' part. Uh, 
So, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of lack of information that really gets in the way of me enjoying the game for very long. Right, right. Uh, can I, can I, t- oh, real quick, I wanted to say, uh, one, one of the, the cool things you can do with cargo, and this is just because when I was thinking of how to make cargo interesting, and does, uh, East India Company do anything to, to make cargo interesting, and mostly the answer is no. Uh, but a couple of things they do, uh, first of all, and this is so pedantic, you have these stupid ironwares that you have to bring from home port to your other, uh, your other ports to upgrade them. So that's a little bit of what you were talking about, Julian, where some of the cargos are actually used. Um, but that right. was just so micro-intensive, is making sure you had enough ironwares at this port to upgrade the fort, and then over at this port to upgrade the trading post. Oh, and, you, and you have to enter the port to unload those, otherwise oh. they'll just sell. Yeah, and not only unload them, you had to put them in your dock. Right, exactly, Troy, exactly. Yeah, yeah you had to put them in your warehouse. Oh, God, I hate it. But one of the cool things they did do is... Some trade goods are measured in kilograms versus tons, so they basically took up no cargo space. And I kind of wish they'd explored that a little bit, like the diamonds, I think. Diamonds yeah. and maybe gold basically never took up cargo space. Uh, you could carry as much as you could afford, and that was a way to sort of distinguish those trade goods from things where the tonnage was really significant, uh, which was everything else. Which made those great ports to own, if you could yep. afford stock up on diamonds and gold. And they were shorter trips, too. Much shorter trips. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I, it's another thing, too. I wish I had some sense for how quickly trade goods replenished. You know, how, what, what's the best way to make sure that five galleons can go down to Natal and fill up with diamonds without wasting right. Right. back and forth? Uh-huh. Well, even if you just have a simple menu, wait there until uh, right. the hold is full. But... but- but then, of course, they're, they're just sucking money. To yeah. some extent, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I for a little while here, but is a lot of this the fact that we're relying on companies to make us a great AI to trade against? Because I, I can't actually think of a good game that I've really, really enjoyed, with the possible exception of Railroad to Tycoon, which I really did enjoy, where I found the AI trading experience to be satisfying and not mechanical. However, in in face-to-face games or in games where I'm playing online and I'm actually talking to the people online <laughs> and I'm actually like verbally discussing trades and stuff, those are always very satisfying. I mean, do we really – is this an issue of multiplayer and AI versus not? You, Julian, are such an inveterate and unrepentant board gamer. I don't know what to do with you. That's you know, but the reality is, I play like my like ten percent of my gaming time is spent with board games. So I, I while I while I accept that and I will cherish that, I'll take that to bed to me, bed with me, and cuddle it tonight. Uh, I, I I have to say it's not really true, but maybe my heart is there. But maybe that's because I think people are more interesting to play against. Well, well we had games, this discussion before. Uh, but. Trade games are are. Maybe more than any, well, not more than any other strategy game, but certainly a big part of trade games is sort of you're, you're playing against a system. Like it's sort of yeah. you're trying to master the system rather than necessarily any sort of like traditional head-to-head conflict. And, and, and you don't really necessarily need the sort of the unpredictability or the, the surprises that a human player gives you. Like, like one of the earliest trading games, holy cats, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. Uh, it, wasn't it called Taipan? That that like Unix thing that used oh, ASCII characters. Yes, 
Yes, yes, I remember that. And that was trading, wasn't it? Yeah. And it, it was just a system. It was a basic system, and you, I don't even think there were other trading companies. You just sailed your ship around, you bought and sold. You might have even had opium in it. I mean, that would be M-rated these days. Uh, but it, it, trading games, I think, are, are very much about systems. They can get away much more easily with being about a system than about necessarily other players. Uh but it's, I think it's a valid complaint, Julian. I mean, I think absolutely it's better. Everything's better with multiplayer. That's what, what I've always sort of uh, said. I, uh, and yes, trading games are better with multiplayer, but barring that, I, I think they lend themselves pretty well to computer systems. Well, but, but, but to get back to things like East India Company, part of the problem with East mm-hmm. India Company is that trading is faceless. Right. I mean, even though you're theoretically you're Spain and you're competing against England or whatever, whatever you know country you just country slash company you decided to play, there's never really a sense that you're like defeating England in a trade. I mean, right. and maybe I just didn't play it enough. Maybe there is. Maybe there is some sort of auction system I didn't get to or something. But but there's never a sense that ha ha, I'm a better trader and I figured out the routes better than England. Well, you do beat so, the other players. I mean, you definitely have to. That one of the victory well, conditions is to drum everyone else out of the game. Well, yeah, but there's no, but but there's not like a, a there's not the sort of a mano a mano sense, right? I don't feel like there's an AI dude that I'm competing against. I feel like I'm just. Well, really you know, I wonder how much system. that gets to what what Troy was talking about. About it's really hard to see what effect you're having on the other player. Uh, it's really hard to you know. There's not a lot of information about what ports they're developing or. Uh, right. So, yeah, I think that I, I wonder how much that's the case, Julian, and how much that's just another example of the game not giving you enough information. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. So, uh, any final thoughts on the future of trading games? I, I wanted to mention a great trading game on the Nintendo DS, if I may. And it's not even really a trading game, but it has trading in it that, uh, in a way... JRPG. It's not a JRPG, actually. This is a very, very Western game. Not only that, it's a very, very successful franchise. As a matter of fact, it's, it's one of the most successful video gaming franchises ever. And on the Nintendo DS, it has a trading game that weaves in very nicely with the main gameplay. Uh, it also tanked on the Nintendo DS. It was a huge disappointment for the publisher. Uh, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, Chinatown Wars? Hey! How did you know that? Because I'm psychic. <laughs> you must have cheated. Yeah, so Grand Theft Auto Chinatown Wars has this really uh, awesome drug trading sub-game. Uh, the, the, the way the game progression works is you get missions, like any GTA, and uh, to do a mission, you need firepower. You need to buy guns. And the way you basically make money in GTA Chinatown Wars is between missions, or whenever you want, you buy drugs from one faction, and you sell them to another faction. And, and these drugs don't really have... I mean, the main difference amongst the drugs, I think there might be like a cargo capacity thing, but the main difference is <laughs> that like... Like the Jamaicans like weed, uh, the punkers like ecstasy, uh, the mob, of course, they're really into coke. Uh, so there's different factions that want different drugs. So you keep an eye out for when someone is like selling drugs cheaply, you go buy a bunch of drugs from them and you cart it over to the people who want those drugs. So there's a little personality there because you're driving through this, this cool 
representation of Liberty City, and the actual driving is really good in the game. So what you're doing in the course of trading is interesting. It's engaging. I mean, I, I really like driving around the city, carrying my my trunk load of marijuana to the Jamaicans. Um, but it's very much a trading game because the more money you make, the more firepower you can afford to do the missions that you have to do to progress the game. So there you go. So why did that tank? Well, I think the conventional wisdom, and I kind of agree with this, is because... Uh, the Nintendo DS is very much sort of a family platform, uh, and I don't think there's much of a market for an adult, uh, meaning an M-rated sort of violence-oriented title. Uh, I think that's the conventional wisdom for why it tanked. America has let us down again. <laughs> but for any anybody listening, if you want a trading sort of strategy game, eh, it's kind of actiony, but it's oh, still come on. some really what. what? Well, if we're talking about trading games, it's a trading game, Julian. You look, you buy low, you sell Shows. high. You have to, you have to deal with, you know, you have to deal with getting across town okay. without getting busted by the cops or a rival gang. Uh, I would say it's as much a strategy game as East India Company. So there. Bah. Really, really, <laughs> that's what you've got for me, bah. Come on, I just did I not convince you? <laughs> no, I no, but it's just it's the constant attempts that I make to try to, to wedge, you know, first person shooters and MMOs into strategy game territory. And I we've clearly put Bruce to sleep with the whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well Bruce doesn't he uses his uh his Nintendo DS for uh for that, that little jewelry shop strategy game. You know, they've got That's those tweens. There's like there's like mall games like you go shopping and you make jewelry and stuff and it's like strategy games for tweens. So what happened to that dog game? Oh, don't pretend you don't play Nintendo Dogs, Bruce. That's a Nintendo Dogs. <laughs> That's a strategy yeah. game. No, I, I, I I'm not going to go there. I was kidding. So next week. We will be talking about uh, World War II, the Good War, to, to mark the release of, uh, what's it called, Hearts of Iron 3? <laughs> what's it called? <laughs> it's it's 10 o'clock. I'm an old man. Uh, Hearts of Iron 3, we will be talking about uh, World War II grand strategy games. How do you make one good? And if, has anyone improved on Axis, of Ally, Axis and Allies? God, I hope so. Uh, if you have any questions, suggestions for topics, please email me at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com. Getting lots of input from listeners. Always happy to hear from you. Uh, anything to add, guys? Uh, do we know who our sponsor is next week? Well, we're talking about World War II, so it's the American Legion, I expect. Very good. Very good. Say good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night, all. Good night, all. At Trader Joe's, we've been in the ice cream cake business since way back in March. This is John Bastalone of Trader Joe's. We always knew what we wanted from an ice cream cake. All natural ingredients, of course.